0: I've spent most of my time as a federal prosecutor. In the beginning, I was a federal judicial clerk, and I worked for a couple of law firms doing white-collar criminal defense. But about seven years in, I moved over to the Department of Justice. And at the Department of Justice, I first joined the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section in Washington, D.C., where I did a lot of policy analysis and legislative drafting and analysis. But I also did investigations all around the country, mostly trademark and copyright infringement, theft of trade secrets, and also computer intrusions. But I was also the ethics advisor, and I guess that was really my first foray into compliance, was being the ethics advisor.
1: That was Scott Garland, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, who is this week's guest on the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode. Today, I have with me Scott Garland. Scott is a fellow U of M Law grad, so we have to, of course, start with that. But he's also a managing director at Affiliated Monitors. So, Scott, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Scott, you have a unique professional background, at least from uh, most people I visit with. So I was wondering if you could detail us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. First, as you noted, I'm a lawyer and I've spent most of my time as a federal prosecutor. In the beginning, I was a federal judicial clerk and I worked for a couple of law firms doing white collar criminal defense. But about seven years in, I moved over to the Department of Justice. And at the Department of Justice, I first joined the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section in Washington, D.C., where I did a lot of policy analysis and legislative drafting and analysis. But I also did investigations all around the country, mostly trademark and copyright infringement, theft of trade secrets, and also computer intrusions. But I was also the ethics advisor, and I guess that was really my first foray into compliance, was being the ethics advisor. In about 2008, I moved to the U.S. Attorney's Office, joined the Cybercrime Unit, and did a lot of the same sort of work, but none of the policy analysis, more just pure investigations. And then in 2014, I joined the National Security Unit, and um, I, in 2018, became the Professional Responsibility Officer, which was a much, much more intense compliance experience and responsibilities. That basically led me to essentially get more involved in compliance and led me eventually to join affiliated monitors.
1: So, I'd like to maybe go into a little bit of detail at your work at the Department of Justice. What does a deputy chief of national security cyber specialist do or entail?
0: Yeah, so the national security unit covered a wide ground. Most people probably think of international and domestic terrorism and human rights violations, and I had a steady diet of those cases and found them fascinating. But a lot of what the National Security Unit also does is to address efforts by other countries to obtain U.S. money and technology illegally and individuals to help them do that. So we're talking about export control. We're talking about theft of trade secrets cyber intrusions and fraud. And another thing that the National Security Unit does is to deal with safeguarding classified information, usually at government agencies, but also at contractors as well, especially defense contractors. So as deputy chief, what I was there to do was to help the chief run the unit or run the unit when the chief was absent A lot of what I did was to help AUSAs do their job, and that was mostly to brainstorm with them about various cases or tactics that they wanted to consider in their investigations or situations, offer guidance and help, a lot of briefing and coordinating with management. And then in national security, you do a lot of briefing and coordinating with the National Security Division in Washington, D.C.,
1: So, Scott, in your work in the National Cybersecurity Unit in Boston, is that unit headquartered or are there offices, I should say, in each U.S. attorney's office? Is it also headquartered in Maine Justice, or what's the structure of that unit?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, since the early 2000s, the Department of Justice has had a government-wide approach towards cybercrime, and cybersecurity as well. So there are specially trained cybercrime prosecutors in every U.S. attorney's office around the country, and they are helped out and guided quite a bit, a lot by the computer crime intellectual property section that is located in D.C. Sometimes they're there for just guidance, but sometimes they're there to pair up and collaborate on cases as well. The same thing is true with national security. In national security division has people who are specially trained in national security cybercrime investigations. And they give specialized training to their national security cyber specialists who are in each U.S. attorney's office throughout the country. So for that, you'd probably have a good 200 people around the country who have the sort of expertise that I had and would come together for training. And collaboration as well.
1: And could you tell us a little bit about your work as the professional responsibility officer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts?
0: Yeah, that was a job that I don't think I'd ever really anticipated holding at all. But one of my mentors in the office eventually retired, and the U.S. Attorney thought it would be a good idea to have me pick up where he had left off. The professional responsibility officer is like a compliance officer for the attorneys and actually the staff and the management as well at the U.S. Attorney's Office, who helps them do their investigations and go about their their, uh, trials in a manner that's legally ethical. The rules of professional ethics are complied with and along the way, make sure that that they're complying with constitutional rules, department policy as well, as they intersect. So like any compliance officer, I really had two modes of acting, really three. One was proactive, wherein a lawyer would come in and say, I'm thinking about taking this action, and I want to find out whether this is okay, whether it's ethical to do. And if not, then I'd like to come up with some other solutions, and I would do that. And I would often have to drop whatever I was doing in order to help them with that. The other type of work that I would do was retroactive, where somebody would come to me and say, such and such a situation happened. I think maybe there might have been a breach of ethics either by myself, by my adversary, by somebody I was working with. What do I do in that situation? And in those situations, I would counsel that person. I would counsel management. I would be the liaison with the oversight agencies as well who have responsibility for that. And then the third thing I would do was I was responsible for education and training like any other compliance officer, trying to make sure that the people that were working in the office were aware of any changes in the law, any changes of interpretation in the law, and giving them resources so that they could do their jobs as well. And that's a lot of the work that I did. And while I was there, I spent a bit of time completely revising how we did business In the professional responsibility realm.
1: Let me take a step back to your time in Washington. Were you in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia or were you in Maine Justice?
0: I was at Maine Justice and then there were a number of U.S. Attorney's Offices throughout the country that I would go out and do investigations with.
1: And I probably should have started with, what got you interested in computer crime and intellectual property at the Department of Justice?
0: I originally went to college to be a software engineer. I was part of the first generation of kids and teenagers who learned how to program computers, in college, actually before college, even before high school. So by the time I was in high school, I'd already made some money programming on small jobs. And that's what I wanted to do. I decided that I wasn't going to be a computer programmer or software engineer because I didn't want to spend my time in front of a computer all the time. I didn't realize at the time that everybody was going to spend all their time in front of a computer. And so while at MIT, I wound up getting involved with policy through economics. When I went to law school and afterwards, one of the things I realized was that I had a talent for not only understanding technology, but also talking to people about technology like not only software engineers, but mechanical engineers, scientists as well, understanding those issues, understanding how those held policy issues for complying with the law or not complying with the law, and then being able to translate all that to a completely non-technical audience. And it was that set of skills that brought me to the attention of the computer crime and intellectual property section but also brought my attention to them as well.
1: I'm always intrigued by the question of, what's the difference in working at Maine Justice and working at a U.S. Attorney's office? Because I've never done either, so as an outsider, my perception is they're very different, but I wanted to pitch that question to you and maybe get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, to start off, I loved working at both places. Both of them were some of the best jobs I've ever had. I would say that generally when you're working at Maine Justice, you are concerned with issues of national policy, not necessarily just national security policy, but how a particular policy applies across the entire country. And so you may do policy analysis, policy recommendations that might lead to legislative proposals. When you're at a U.S. attorney's office, you don't generally do that unless your U.S. attorney is using the attorney general on such things, and that happens occasionally. When you're at Maine Justice and you do investigations, you're going all over the country and you're relying on the U.S. attorneys or the assistant U.S. attorneys to help you learn who the judges are, who the defense attorneys are, who the investigators are. And when you're at the U.S. attorney's office, you're really more responsible for the day-to-day contact with those cases. And when you have that sort of close responsibility for the cases at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you tend to see cases not as much as how they fit into a broad national policy, but you tend to see more of the individual circumstances of each case, the individual circumstances of each victim, of each defendant, of each suspect as well, and how can you work through to a just resolution of that case, whether that's doing some sort of a deal or whether that's some sort of a trial. But those would be the main differences, I think.
1: Scott, I'd now like to turn to your moving over to Affiliated Monitors, or AMI. And if I could start with what interested you, intrigued you, and indeed took you to AMI?
0: Yeah, the... I had the responsibility and great pleasure of working on a lot of really interesting, hard cases, both at Maine Justice and at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But as a prosecutor, there were a few things that I learned. One was that I had very blunt tools about what I could accomplish, whether that was investigation or prosecution, recommending jail time or not jail time. And I could only really work on 10 to 30 cases at a time. And as I did so, I was always looking backwards. I was always looking at situations where something bad had happened, and my job was to help fix that. But fix that was generally trying to get the money back, the information back, and trying to punish the person who did it. And I thought that as a public service, my job should be to help as many people as possible. And I still believe 100% in that there's a role for prosecution. But as a compliance professional, I started to think about how can I help people do the right thing? How can I move from punishing a few people for doing the wrong thing to helping as many people as possible do the right thing? And that brought me to Affiliated Monitors because Affiliated Monitors' whole goal is to help companies' compliance operations not only get stronger, but also to flourish. Whether that's during a monitorship of an agreement between a company and the government, or whether it's proactive assessments and consulting work that we do.
1: We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Scott Garland. So do you have a sense of the types of monitorships you're looking for or the types of business you hope to develop at AMI?
0: Yes. I think that a big focus will be not only for myself but for AMI. The areas of cyber, of privacy is obviously a big concern of companies abroad and domestically as well. And I expect to be doing a lot of work on that. Sanctions and export control have always been important, but never more than now, given what's happening over in Ukraine and burgeoning sanctions against Russia. I anticipate that the work that I'm going to do will not just be criminal work, that is dealing with monitorships that come out of criminal prosecutions, but matters that are before the FTE, the antitrust division. It also Things that have to do with technology and issues that relate to mergers and acquisition. I expect we'll do a lot of work that involves CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Controls as well. And then finally, a new area for me is we'll be working with state and local governments on some of these areas and with areas that involve both technology and compliance.
1: Scott, many of those areas I am at least have some familiarity with, but I do not around working with companies in the CFIUS arena. I know what CFIUS is, and I have a great CFIUS story if we get to it, but how would you envision helping a company through the CFIUS process or if CFIUS puts certain conditions on allowing a transaction to move forward or perhaps a combination of both?
0: Yeah, as you're aware, what CFIUS does is it looks at investments of foreign companies into the United States with the idea that's generally a good thing, but that when that happens, there can be national security concerns. And so CFIUS often works with companies to set up conditions where there are national security concerns and risks to mitigate those risks. And they'll come up with an agreement for proactively – mitigating those risks over a period of time. And that's exactly what affiliated monitors has done for the last 18 years in a number of contexts. What they've done is looked at agreements between a government and a company where the company agrees to follow certain conditions and then figures out how to monitor those things and how to help the company do that so that they successfully get through the monitors. So I see the work that we'll be doing with Cifius and companies going through Cifius review and mitigation as very similar to the sort of work that AMI has been doing as its core for the last 18 years.
1: Scott, I'd like to ask you to put on your prognosticator hat a little bit, because one of the, I've been thinking about, some of the outcomes or unintended consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Cyber, I think, was on the minds of many companies, certainly on the minds of the government and private corporations around ransomware. But it strikes me that cyber warfare is now almost continuous, particularly with our geopolitical or commercial adversaries. Do you see the government as be, be- becoming more aggressive in the cyber arena, as opposed to perhaps trade or economic sanctions, anti-corruption, some of the areas they've traditionally focused on, but they may focus on more after the Russian invasion?
0: I do. I think that the first area that you're seeing a lot more governmental focus is on disclosure of breaches, to government entities and to the people whose information was exposed by those breaches. Do you see that in efforts by the Biden administration to impose and develop requirements of breach notification on contractors and the like you see that in the efforts of the SEC in trying to fashion rules about that? You see that also in Congress's efforts to come up with a privacy bill that might cover the United States and as privacy and cybersecurity are not the same, but inevitably there's an intersection when it comes to cybersecurity and especially breach notification. I think that the federal government is going to continue to look at companies after they've been breached. And if they haven't notified the right people, ask, why didn't you? And by the way, not only why didn't you, but what sort of protections did you have to begin with to make sure that didn't happen? Because at this point, no company can say, I didn't realize that breaches were an, a, a risk. At this point, everybody understands that they're a risk. And I think that they understand, especially with recent Russian activity and the activity of other governments as well, that more and more it's being done by very sophisticated actors, not just the sophisticated criminal organized gangs, but also by nation states as well.
1: So I didn't ask earlier, but are you a native New Englander?
0: I'm not. I was born in upstate New York, spent my younger years until college in the suburbs of Detroit, so I really actually consider myself a Detroiter.
1: Okay. We're near the end of our time, but I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to talk to another law grad about your time at Hutchins. Do you have a couple of remembrances that you could share, at least with me, if not for all of our audience?
0: <laughs> I did. I got to U of M. I was probably the last person admitted into that class off of a wait list. And so I hadn't been on the U of M campus for a while until I think maybe my first class there and the awe that you get walking through that Gothic building with the Ivy and the stained glass in the courtyard. I still remember that and get a chill when I think about being there. I think the second really strong recollection I have was not necessarily at the U of M law school or on campus, but it was the first time that I ate at Zingerman's. I, I still probably remember the corned beef sandwich that I have, in part because every time I've been in Detroit, I go out of my way to Ann Arbor to eat at Zingerman's, and my kids still send me gift boxes of Zingerman's food. And then I think the last memory of Ann Arbor is just any game day. Walking through town, seeing maize and blue everywhere, everybody happy, and, uh, and just having a really great time and celebrating the fact that everybody was coming together for what might be a good game, might not be a bad game but it was football day, and so it was going to be a good day.
1: Those are three great ones, Scott. We are at the end of our time now, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, any of the topics we've touched on, or Affiliated Monitors, what would be the best way for them to find out?
0: Yes, our website is www.affiliatedmonitors.com. We also have an active LinkedIn page. I have a bit of information on my LinkedIn page. And so I invite people to connect with me. And if they do want to get in touch with me at any point, had the same cell phone number for about 20 years at 617-970-8868. I'm always happy to hear from people. I do as well. Thank you for having me on.
1: This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'd like to... Tell you about a great new podcast series on the award winning Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DiBernardis, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and anti corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in this modern era of FCPA and anti corruption enforcement. I know you'll enjoy this series. And I hope you will check it out. The Corruption Files on the Compliance Podcast Network, Megaphone, iTunes, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.